The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. All right, Jesse Ventura gave me the greatest advice when it came to pro wrestling when I was 17 years old. You're going to hear exactly what that was coming up today on Talk is Jericho. We talk a little bit about his wrestling career. We talk about the medical condition that pretty much ended it, and we're going to get into conspiracy theories big time. Now, Jesse's big into conspiracy theories, and we got into a great discussion. I should have asked him about the hackers that took over my social media pages earlier this week. That seems like a little bit of a conspiracy. We're going to talk about that as well. It was a really stressful, crazy week, but I was able to survive it. Thanks to my Coeos supplement for the brain. It helped boosted the function, increased motivation, enhanced medical clarity, improved my memory recall, and supercharged my focus. So that means I was ready when Jesse started talking about the JFK assassination, the moon landing being faked, even 9-11. I was able to ask questions and discuss the arguments and theories that Jesse believes in. It was crazy. His, his people even cut him off uh, in the middle of the show because I think he was uh, getting a little fired up. A lot of fascinating stuff that you're going to hear about. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho, the pot of thunder and rock and roll. The remedy for boredom has arrived. The People's Podcast is here, and we're going to go for a ride with the governor, Jesse the Mind Ventura, Jesse the Body Ventura. He is here on the show. Let me ask you this. I, I want to know how a competitive swimmer went from that to becoming a Navy SEAL, to becoming a pro wrestler, to becoming the governor of Minnesota, to becoming one of the leading experts in conspiracy theories. Not as crazy as it sounds when you hear Jesse the Body tell it, Jesse the Mind tell it. He talks about his broadcasting career with the WWE, making movies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And if you know Jesse, you know he's a little bit off the rails and he has no problems getting there today. His people I even cut him off uh, before the show was done. They said they kind of pulled him, gave him the hook. I think he was getting a little bit too <laughs> too wacko. Uh, but I, you know, I love that sort of stuff. But I'll tell you what, it's not any fun. When it assails you and anyone that uh, follows me on social media knows that this week I got hacked. Uh, my Instagram was hacked uh, a couple times. I thought it was three, ended up being only two. I'll tell you the story. The first time it was awful. Uh, a bunch of very obscene, filthy pictures were posted. Not funny at all. And um, it was actually really, really, really bad. A lot of uh, bad messages posted on my uh, Twitter feed. 
and then even my email was hacked into, my Amazon was hacked into, uh, all all the stuff that that um, that I had kind of hooked up with that email address. And I'll tell you how it happened. People are saying you need a better password. You need to change your password. This really had nothing to do with a password. It was way deeper than that, and that was the scary thing. What went down was I got a direct message from a friend of mine. He's a bass player in a very prominent band. And uh, he, he said, hey, man, can I get your email address? And I didn't think twice. He said, I just gave it to him. I shot it over to him, even though I thought that was kind of weird considering that he has my phone number and he could have just, you know, texted me. But I thought, whatever. So I sent my email in, uh, sent my email over to him. And then uh, I guess about a day later, I got another DM saying, uh, I just got my first pet today. Do you have any pets? And I knew that that was not this guy. And as a matter of fact, underneath the Twitter address, which was his old address, there was a hashtag GM. Okay, keep that in mind. So about five minutes later, I am on uh, Twitter, just messing around. I was on the plane, actually. We, we played Dallas the night before on the Fozzie Slash uh, final show, which was amazing. It was a great tour. I love those guys. We would love to play more shows with Slash. It was the perfect mix uh, their crowd and our crowd. It was just really, really cool. So I was on a high. I was in the air, uh, airplane getting ready to take off, and I noticed that I was kicked out of my Twitter. I started getting a lot of emails from people saying that your Twitter is hacked, and it was, you know, F Vince McMahon, just really juvenile, stupid stuff, you know, wrestling, stupid stuff. So, um, wow, that's kind of weird. So I have to try and figure out how I got hacked, and then I realized, oh, okay, it's probably from that guy who DM'd me. And then I'm about to take off and I hear that my Instagram has been hacked and it's bad. And then we take off. So I'm stuck for like 30 minutes, right? Or sorry, 30 minutes, two, and hour, two hours and 30 minutes, whatever it takes to get from Dallas back to Tampa. I landed and then I found out that the Instagram had been hacked with these awful, awful pictures. And it was really, really bad, man. Like my 10-year-old niece follows me on Instagram. My six, uh, 17-year-old niece follows me on Instagram. Ash, the fish expert. So, you know, whoever posted this, if you're listening, uh, not cool at all and also very illegal i mean that's distributing pornography to children this goes beyond getting hacked you want to hack and screw with me that's fine but now you're messing with kids you know and the pictures that were put up were really 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 bad things that can scar a kid for life so good job assholes who uh who decided it was they wanted to hack into my personal instagram and my twitter and my email and then start putting up pictures like that like i hope you live with that because the name of the gm i'm not even going to say what they were. So I'm not going to say the name of these cowards, these pricks who, uh, who busted in there, but by putting up those pictures, you now just hurt a lot of kids. You know, you hurt a lot of kids and you scarred a lot of kids. And I don't care if you're a 15 year old kid in your mother's basement, which is the cliche or a 40 year old guy or whatever that is seriously effed up and you're going to pay the price for that. Maybe not in this world, but in the next, that is a very, very bad thing that you did. Uh, and, and a lot of guilt should be associated with that. So anyways, uh, it, it was really cool. WWE jumped in Century media, Fozzie's record company jumped in a lot of great social media people working on that. Plus my guy, Scott Dixon, who does my social media, everybody kind of worked together to figure out what was going on because the, per the people busted into my email account and then went into the, to the depths of the account and started changing a lot of stuff in there. And then they were able to put another email address 
so that my Instagram account was no longer represented by my email, it was represented by another email, and that's how they basically blocked me out of my own account. So we kicked them out, I got Twitter back, secured, I got my email back, secured, I got Instagram, pulled off the internet, deleted, then brought back on, secured, done, okay? So then I go and change everything. Um, you know, all the stuff that you need to change, I can't give all the details, but this morning, I'm putting up a, 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 an Instagram of, of David Coverdale, of the David Coverdale show that I did the other day from White Snake and how great it was. And right afterwards, boom, hacked again. This time, there's no pornographic pictures. There's just a picture of me in prison saying, ha-ha, you need to learn how to secure your stuff. You know, we win. So, of course, I instantly go back to the people that I know. Uh, I get on the horn with some real hard-hitting experts, and I did all the things that I didn't know to do the day before. Now, once again, this is not a matter of changing your password. There is software that all of you guys need to get, security software that all you guys need to get to protect you from this happening. Because this is not a matter of, oh, Jericho, you shouldn't have used Ralphus69 as your password. It wasn't that. It was deeper than that. And that's the scary thing about this. This was not just a normal, you know, somebody messes with you. This is a hack job. Like when you hear, like the, the other, uh, today I read that the IRS was hacked. So um, when you read about the security programs and the security apps and, the, and all that sort of stuff, the walls that you can put up on your personal stuff, do it because it's not as hard as you think to hack into your personal account. So then I rescued the Instagram and, and the Twitter was, was locked down. I got the email locked down, uh, changed all the stuff that I had to change. Uh, and, and don't trust me. Don't say, well, you should have started this or done this or done that. I, I believe me. I know exactly what I had to do. And I did all of it with some hard hitting higher ups. And I'll tell you something else too, Mr. GM, you know who you are. They're finding you too. They're, 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 they're looking you up right now and they're getting into your system and they found so much stuff that you don't even know yet. And charges will be pressed. Uh, distributing pornography to minors is one of them. So, uh, Mr. GM, or if it's a team, you guys, or just one of you guys, uh, be thankful to know that you, you, you did what you wanted to do. You got your attention, and now you're going to get the cops on your trail. So congratulations. Good for you. And that's coming. So um, then, like, once again, the Instagram kind of went down. And the reason why it went down the third time is not because the GM guys got it. It's because I had the people from the WB working hard, the people from Century Media working hard. They crossed the streams and kind of were trumping each other and didn't know it. So um, that's all been taken care of. Like I said, it's Jericho 2 Hackers 0. But I w I'm, I'm saying this to you guys, not to so much discuss my issue, but to protect you. Like I said, please go get the firewalls and the, the the masks that you have to get and the you know all the different tricks that you have to do I'm not even going to say you can look them up quick enough do not just trust a flimsy password to protect all of your personal social media and all the rest of the stuff okay if there's anything that you can learn from this is that we're not as um, we're not as protected security wise as we think we are okay so once again, I apologize. I lost about 40,000 followers on Instagram, but like I said, whatever. I mean, it is what it is, and I apologize to everybody that saw those horrible pictures that were put up. And uh, like I said, the only thing I can preach to you guys is please protect yourself. Get the security that uh, put on to all of your emails and all your different accounts. Uh, it's mostly free, 
Okay. So um, while you are online protecting all of your personal elements and all your personal um, bits of information, I want you to go head over to YouTube or ComedyCentral.com and check out Nothing to Report, the new Comedy Central digital series done by myself and Nick Mundy, uh, Team Tiger Awesome. We're already over a million views, well over a million views in, in just over a month. Thanks to all you guys checking it out and loving it and, and favoring it and liking it. Uh, Nick and the guys from Team Tiger Awesome did a great job. We worked really hard on that, and it's been a success, like I said. And I want you to go watch uh, any one of the six episodes. They're five minutes long five minutes of comedy joy and the more you guys watch them the more comedy central hears hears about it and the more chance we have of doing a pilot or even a full-fledged tv series it's in the works all right you know a full-fledged nothing to report series would be so cookie yo if it happens because of all you guys who support it and liked it and once again if you had another chance to see it just go to youtube type in nothing to report and watch it man okay do it and, uh, another thing I want you to do is get ready to hear Jesse Ventura. He's a fire plug, man. He's a fireball, and he's standing by. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. All right, on the line, I've got the governor, Jesse Ventura, is here. How you doing, Jesse? Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? Uh, I'm doing great, man. I'm glad uh, to have you on the show here. Uh, so great to talk to you again for the second time in like two weeks. Yeah, we're becoming bosom buddies here. We're talking so often. We didn't speak for 10 years and now twice in a week. I know. I got to tell you this. I, I, I saved this story. Um, I Okay, let me set the scene. It's December of 1988. I'm walking downtown uh, in, in Winnipeg where I grew up, and I walk past this guy who's got a white leather jacket with all the fringes on it, and I turn and I realize, oh, my gosh, that's Jesse the Body Ventura. So I turn around and I, I kind of walk up beside you and I start talking to you because you were in town to play a celebrity hockey game. Do you remember this? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, you played a celebrity hockey game. And something that I'll never forget is I, I, was, I, I walked beside you for probably 10, 15 minutes as you were walking back to your hotel. And just a total fan, you know, asking fanboy questions, Mark questions, as we say. But the thing I'll never forget is you actually answered all my questions. You were like really, really nice and really uh, uh, informative about answering all these questions I had about, you know, I want to get into wrestling and I want to do this and I want to do that. You'd probably heard it a million times, but you, you, you let me walk beside you and, and answer my questions that day, which I always thought was really, really cool. Well, Chris, it must have been a bad day for me. I don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> no, then, actually, actually, when it comes down to, and I'll say this in all honesty, I was a villain or a heel my entire career in wrestling. And many times in a one-on-one -on -one situation, the bad guys are so used to being abused that when they do meet someone, sometimes we go overboard and we're actually we're nicer <laughs> than the good guys are because... We're so used to being maltreated all the time. <laughs> well, and that's kind of what happened because you played the hockey game. 
Uh, you could barely skate, but you, I think you scored three goals that night. Everyone threw their hats on the ice. <laughs> he got the hat trick. <laughs> but then afterwards, there was an after party, and once again, I, I got a chance to talk with you for for. I, I still have the picture. It must have been for an hour, and asked you a lot of questions about getting into wrestling. And you must have knew, known that I was serious about it because you gave me some great advice. Uh, you said if you're going to get into wrestling, a uh, have something to fall back onto. And B, be prepared to live every day in pain. Those are the two things you told me. <laughs> and I was honest, wasn't I? You sure were. <laughs> I actually went to college uh, because Jesse the Body told me to have something to fall back onto. So that's <laughs> advice that I still remember to this day. Well, you know, it's like anything. It's something that all athletes, when you're at the top of your game, you never think about it. You never think right. that there's one opponent that you can never beat, whether you're Muhammad Ali whether you're Hank Aaron, no matter who you are and how great you are, the one opponent you'll never beat is time. Mm-hmm. You're going to get old, and, and someone will come to replace you when you get old. And there's nothing that Michael Jordan, it doesn't matter who you are. Right. You will lose to time eventually. That's why I always, if there was a young kid who was serious about getting into wrestling, I would always emphasize to that young person, as I did to you, mm-hmm. have something to fall back on because there's going to come a day where you won't be able to wrestle anymore and you had better have taken care of yourself when you get to that day. Well, I mean, and that's one thing I've, I've always kind of uh, been kindred spirits with you as far as, I mean, you, you've had such a varied career and you've done so many amazing things. I mean, from wrestling to what you're doing all past wrestling, but even before you got into wrestling, um, t- tell us a little bit about, about how you decided that you wanted to get into the wrestling business. But before you do that, you were a bodyguard for the Rolling Stones. Is that true? Well, that actually happened after I was wrestling. Oh, okay. No, I, I had been wrestling. I, I, st- I went into the Navy right out of high school. I, I was actually a competitive swimmer. Okay. That's why I didn't know how to skate. You know, I'm one of the rare Minnesotans born and raised in Minnesota. And you, you being from Winnipeg, you know that it gets almost as cold down in Minneapolis as it does in Winnipeg. That's right. You know, two degrees one way or the other. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so I'm one of the few born Minnesotans because I was a swimmer. I spent every winter in a swimming pool. I, I was in liquid water. I wasn't on frozen water. That's why I never learned how to skate. And so uh, when I finished my career as a swimmer, you know, there's no professional swimming unless there's only one place you can swim professionally. Where's that? That's in the United States Navy as a frogman. Ah, gotcha. So so I I furthered my swimming career for about five years being a frogman in the Navy. And then when I got out of, I was getting out of the Navy. It was funny. My last year in the Navy, I started pumping iron. Uh-huh. And, and I really changed my body. When I went through SEAL training, I started at 190 pounds. When I graduated from SEAL training 25 weeks later, I weighed 212 pounds. Wow. They put 22 pounds of mu- solid muscle on me. Well, then when I got to the end of my Navy career, my last year, I started pumping iron. I started transitioning and changing, and my body actually got up to over 230 pounds I was actually technically overweight to be in the Navy. Hmm. I went into my executive officer. It's a funny story. I'd come back from my second deployment, and I was weighing about 230 pounds and pumping iron like crazy because I wanted to play college football, I thought. And uh, 
I went into my XO and said, sir, I'm four pounds overweight. The Navy only allows me at my height to be 228 pounds. I weigh 232. Can I get an early discharge? And I'll never forget my executive officer. He looks at me and goes, well, he said, I'm sure if we had you take your shirt off and we took a picture of you and we sent it to BUPERS, which is the Bureau of Naval Personnel, uh-huh. he, he said, I think they'd grant you a waiver for being four pounds overweight. <laughs> you have no body fat on you whatsoever. You're solid muscle. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it didn't work. I, I, Chris, I couldn't get out early. Yeah. But then anyway, so I had this four-month period in the Navy that I had to kill time. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to take leave and go home for 30 days, and when I come back, I'll have 10 days left, just enough to process out. So I went home on leave for 30 days, let my hair grow longer, use dippity do to flatten it down so they, some chief <laughs> wouldn't tell me to get a haircut one, two days before I'm due to get out. Right. And this is back in 1973 now, back, you know, when the long hair was still in. Yeah. And now... And I never had a chance to have long hair because I'd spent five years in the Navy. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, I come back. But while I was home on leave, and you always got money when you're on leave because, you know, you go home, you always got a pocket full of dough. And my dad had slipped me his hundred bucks to, you know, yeah. that money because you're in the military. And uh, I remember one night wrestling was at the Minneapolis Auditorium and all my buddies were busy. They were all doing other things and I had nothing to do on leave. So I drove down there. I'd been a fan as a kid when Crusher was a bad guy yeah. and going way back to the early AWA days. And I remember I walked up to the ticket booth and I was alone. Mm-hmm. And I said to the lady, give me the best ticket you got. And she looked and she said, I think I've got a single in the front row. Yes, here. And so I bought this ticket in the front row. I mean, and you know, as I do, that's where the hardcore marks are. <laughs> <laughs> you know, front row tickets, come on. Yeah. That's where you're going to get spit on, bled on, and everything else. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the front row, and I got my first glimpse that night. I believe he was, yeah, he was in a six-man tag match. Uh-huh. Out, but out walked superstar Billy Graham. Wow. And I took one look at superstar Graham when he got in the ring, and he glanced at me because I noticed he looked at me when he got in the ring because I was put together by then. I was about 235. Yeah. And I'd been pumping iron like a madman, wearing a tight tank top or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, but I looked at superstar Billy Graham, the first real bodybuilder that made the transition to wrestling and the tie-dye, the colors, the showmanship, and the whole superstar thing. And I, bear, I don't deny it. I patterned my whole career after Billy Graham, superstar hmm. Graham. He was my hero. He was my idol. He was the guy that, that inspired me and as well as Hogan and a lot of other guys to get into wrestling. It was superstar Billy Graham that was the kingmaker. Yeah. And, and so I saw Graham that night, and that's when the light went off. And I, I went home then, got out of the Navy, came back and went to college, and I, I was on the GI Bill, so I didn't have to really – take a major or nothing right away. Mm-hmm. So I started getting into theater. I got really involved in theater at college. I really enjoyed it. And that's when it hit me. I thought, you know, wrestling yeah. that combines theater with athleticism. That's right. This is perfect. This is perfect. I can be a theater because I actually, uh, here's a good one for you, uh, Chris. A lot of people don't know. I actually was in Aristophanes, the birds, a Greek comedy. Really? 
Yeah, I, I, I did it in college. I was in the college play, Aristophanes the Birds. <laughs> it was a Greek comedy. And so, but that's what inspired me to get into wrestling with superstar Billy Graham. And then the fact that, okay, I thought about playing football, but I thought football, all you have is a helmet and a name on your back. Nobody ever sees you. You don't perform there. There's no theatrics there. Right. And so I thought, I thought wrestling combines both theater athleticism. This is perfect. And so I then started training. I first went to Vern Gagne and he didn't have a school going. And then I met Eddie Sharkey down at the old 7th Street Gym on 7th and Hennepin. And Eddie, who subsequently trained Bob Backlund, he, mm-hmm. trained, he trained the Road Warriors. He trained a big list of some A lot of guys. A lot of guys. And so I trained with Eddie Sharkey for seven months. I was right after Backlund. He had just trained Bob Backlund, and I was his next protege. And I trained with Eddie for seven months. I, got, I, I then went to Kansas City and started in Kansas City, wrestled Kansas City, wrestled Portland, wrestled Hawaii, wrestled Portland again. And then, then I came to Minneapolis. Many people thought I started in Minneapolis, but that was not true. I had already been wrestling five years before I got to Minneapolis. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about that with Don Owen and all that sort of thing. And yeah. uh, I remember one of my first memories of wrestling was in my grandmother's basement, and we would watch AWA every Saturday. We'd watch AWA, then the Roadrunner uh, Cartoon Hour, then Hockey Night in Canada. And that was, uh, and she was, <laughs> and she was a pretty quiet lady. But when you were on, man. She hated Jesse the Body Ventura, and we always she'd be screaming at the TV. Ah, oh, Jesse the Body, what a jerk! He's a jerk! He's cheating! And I personally, uh, I didn't want to, you know, obviously didn't want to disobey my grandmother. But I thought you were pretty cool because of all the <laughs> the boas and the the well, diamond in the chin. <laughs> it was it was like when when I went to college later that year. I was in the weight room at college, and there were six or seven of us in there. All of us loved Graham. Yeah, and we and we used to go down and buy tickets in blocks as college guys, uh-huh. and we we cheer for all the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, so one thing you always look for is the college or the teenagers will always go with the villains. That's right, because they're rebelling anyway. What? So they're going to rebel all the way, and and they're going to go because uh, we'd go down there. And, oh my God! I remember one time I was cheering for Graham, and he. Do you remember remember Odd Job from Goldfinger? Yeah, Tosh Togo. Well, Graham was wrestling him, Uh odd job. And Wally Carbo had said he had lifted the rules and said odd job could use all his karate, which was then illegal, (laughs) you know. He couldn't use karate in wrestling. But he was going to let odd job, you know, use all his karate. (laughs) Well, Graham's wrestling him that night. And, of course, we're cheering for Graham. And I'll never forget there was a guy down from me. We're in like the fourth or fifth row. There's a guy three seats down from me on the right in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And I had him, this is how I knew I had to get into wrestling, Chris. I had him so pissed off at me that I thought he was going to get out of the wheelchair and walk. <laughs> he was, he was so, and I remember when odd job took over and started beating up Graham, the guy looks at me, goes, screams at me. What do you think of your goddamn hero now? 
<laughs> and I looked at him and said, you'll see, Graham will win, Graham will win. And sure enough, Superstar wins. And I look over and I'm giving the guy the burn, and oh, my God. Like I said, if he could have gotten up and walked out of the chair and hit me, I think I was the closest to making this guy walk in his life. <laughs> You're like a television evangelist. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but that was at the point, too, when my buddies at college said, you got to get into this. They said, God, you're not even a wrestler, and you got the whole crowd hating you. You're a fan. And and then I got the good fortune. I met Superstar then down there, and I later met him at the 7th Street Gym, and he gave me some great advice. He said, you're not going to start here in the AWA. He said, the AWA is too big. Mm -hmm. You got to get out, and you got to get into a small territory and go out there. Ironically, you know, one of the places that offered me to come, and thank God I didn't go. I took Kansas City instead was Calgary. Really? Oh, God. Can you imagine? Then I'd have gotten the shit beat out of me by Stu Hart. Well, that's right, Trained. That's what happened to me. That's why I didn't want to go up there. I heard the (laughs) stories about Calgary. I thought... I don't need that crap. I'll go to Kansas City. <laughs> well, you had actually told me about the, 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 the audio tape, the cassette tape that was floating around the boys of Stu stretching his, uh, his prospects. Well, Brett had it. Yeah. Yeah, Brett, Brett, Brett Hart showed up in the locker room, and he had a cassette player, and he put it on, and we're all listening, and all you're hearing is these horrible, I mean, it was worse than any slasher movie you've ever <laughs> gone to. You hear these blood-curdling screams on this tape. And we're going, what the hell is that, Brett? He goes, oh, that's the old man stretching the new guys. (laughs) (laughs) The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Talk is Jericho. All right, let's get back with Jesse Ventura. Now, you had a great tag team in the East-West Connection with Adrian Adonis. Such amazing chemistry. Tell us about your memories with Adrian. Well, Adrian, Adrian was the true consummate professional in the ring. Yeah. The only problem I had with Adrian was outside the ring. Mm. Adrian had, shall we say, a streak of, uh, uh, what would we say to make it nice here? Adrian <laughs> had, a, Adrian had uh, uh, I'm trying to put it nice now. He had, well, he, he had the tendency to get in trouble. Gotcha. You know, if you get what I mean, he, yeah. he, had, he had that. He, <laughs> that was Adrian <laughs> mm-hmm. inside the ring. No problem. But outside the ring, you had to be a babysitter. Right. And that was my problem. After three years with Adrian, I couldn't take being the babysitter any longer. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what ultimately split us up. But inside the ring, you couldn't have asked for a better tag team partner. Adrian could do it all. Good talker. Great ring mechanics. Knew it all. Great bump man. And uh, he and I, the East-West Connection, we had quite a run because, uh, you know, we, we, were, we were a tag team for Vern Gagne for all those years. And then when we both went out to New York with Vince Sr., mm-hmm. he would lose us even in the tag team capacity out there because he knew how good we were together. And uh, I will say this, Adrian was the best tag team partner I ever had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have to agree with, like I said, there were some classic moments there. And it wasn't, I mean, it, it seemed to me, it wasn't too long after that you had to you had to retire fairly early 
uh, from in-ring competition. Um, what was the well, reason? Well, what happened to me was, unbeknownst, if you fly a lot, you can be certain people are susceptible to blood clots. Yeah. And I am one of them. And uh, at the time in the oh. WWF, you were flying 28 days a month. That's right. I mean, you, you'd get on a plane every day. And, uh, and what happened to me, I was due to go around the circuit with Hogan for the world title. First shot in the WWF, Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan for the world title. First match was supposed to be in Los Angeles. Well, I had to wrestle Oakland and Phoenix before that match, and it started in Oakland. I was in the ring and working, and I was short of breath. I couldn't breathe, and I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And we went to Phoenix, and it got even worse. And I, I thought it was the heat, you know, because mm-hmm. it, was, it was, you know, hot in Phoenix. And I came from Minnesota, and I thought, God, I must just not be adjusted to the heat. The next day, we went to San Diego, and I used to hang out a lot with Big John Studd. Right. I love John. Great guy, family guy. He and I would ride together, and I knew there'd be no hanky-panky with Big John, and it was a great relationship <laughs> yeah. that I had with Big John Studd. And uh, I told John that day, I said, John, I'm not feeling good. I'm not going to the gym. I'm going to take a nap. And, you know, I, and, and I was due to wrestle Hogan the next day wow. in L.A. This was San Diego now the night before. Well, that afternoon I woke up. My entire bed was soaked in sweat, and I couldn't breathe. And fortunately, uh, the Sharp Cabrillo Hospital was only two blocks away from the San Diego Sports Arena. I went out and got in my rental car and drove to the emergency room, and I walked in, and I said, I think I'm getting a reoccurrence of pneumonia. I'd had it a few years ago. And they did a couple tests, and the guy was a former Marine. He said, I want you to sit in that chair and not move. Hmm. I looked at him. I said, what's going on here? He said, just, and I said, come on, man, you're a Marine. I'm a frogman, Navy SEAL. Give it to me. He said, well, he said, I think you got pulmonary emboli, blood clots in the lungs. I said, what? And he said, well, we took an arterial blood test, and you're running about 70. He said, an athlete like you, oxygen-wise, should be in the high 90s. You're way down at 70. You're only getting 70% of your oxygen. Wow. And uh, they brought in the specialists, and then they did an angiogram where they shoot the dye. They They touch in the groin, and you're awake. Yeah. And they shoot this thing up into your lungs through your heart valve and you're watching on the screen and then they blow this dye into your lungs to, and they did it with me and I had massive blood clots in my lungs and I was put critical condition for seven days at the Sharp Cabrillo hospital. Wow. It was, it was so bad, Chris, the doctor called my wife in Minneapolis and made her fly to San Diego. Like, wow, this could be the end sort of thing. Yeah. This was this, he could be dead in an hour hmm. before you even get here. And of course, they put me on heparin and blood thinners, and and I could and naturally I couldn't wrestle Hogan. Stud took my place, and I never did get my go around with Hulk. It would have been three matches. Who knows how much money that cost me? Right. Yeah. You know? Totally. Because you're going with the world champ in a three match program all over the freaking world. Who, who know? Who knew what could have led to as well? You know, with the, with the I, talking that, that you did. But, but. Out of bad comes good, because while I was convalescing and I couldn't get in the ring now for about six months, during that time, I stayed in touch with Vince, and Vince actually paid me. Oh. He actually paid me $1,000 a week Hmm. while I was out. And then he called me about two months after I was back feeling good, and that's when he made the deadly call. He called me up and he said, Jesse, Vince. I said, yeah, Vince. He said, I got an idea. And I said, what is it? He said, 
You think you could be a color commentator? You think you could go on the mic? He said, we've never had a villain, a heel on the mic. Never in wrestling. Right. Has there ever been a villain on the mic? He goes, you th-? I said, Vince, you know I could do that like nothing. It's a piece of cake. He said, we're going to try it. So then Vince brought me in and put me with Monsoon on the B team at the time. And I became the first villain announcer who would side with the bad guys and who would say how much talent it took to pull someone's hair and hide it from a referee. <laughs> Look at how talented he is. The referee didn't see a thing, you know, and God did it. So out of adversity came good because all of a sudden it opened up a broadcasting career to me. Chris, I subsequently got back in the ring and wrestled again for about six more months. In fact, my last match, here's the funny part. Hmm. The first match of my life was in Wichita, Kansas, against Omar Atlas, and I got disqualified, right? Right. The last match of my career was in Winnipeg, Canada, against Tony Atlas, and I got disqualified. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So I thought, there's the spot to end it. Yes. It started with an Atlas, and you got disqualified. You finished with an Atlas and got disqualified. There's the time to end it. So I did. I I left the ring then, but I, I subsequently did double duty where I was actually broadcasting and wrestling. Because we used that on a, on a Saturday night main event where oh. I actually got in the ring and wrestled and then went back to the booth. And, of course, I ridiculed every football announcer on the planet because you never saw them play in the football game and then get up in the booth. That's right. It was over. Well, I mean, and, and like you said, you created a position that's now kind of the standard cliche, the heel announcer. And yep. it, it was huge. It got over huge. I mean, that was the first boom for the WWF in, in the in the mid-80s, late-80s. And you were a big part of that. Everyone would always tune in to hear what you had to say and see what you were going to be wearing, too. Yeah, well, yeah, I had to go into the wardrobe real heavy. That started costing me a lot of money, fortunately. <laughs> and here's something that you'll relate to. The summer between when I did Predator and Running Man, I had to quit the WWF to do Predator, uh-huh. and, then I, and then I signed Running Man that, for that fall. Yeah. Then I went back to negotiate with Vince when I already had Running Man in the pocket. That's when I introduced him to the agent. Uh, <laughs> yes. It worked out well. But uh, that summer, I had nothing to do. I did rock and roll that summer. Really? Yeah. Uh, a, a great guitarist here in Minneapolis, and of course Minneapolis has had some phenomenal sure. musicians. Minnesota, Bob Dylan, Prince, you know the suburbs. So many uh, Soul uh, Asylum. Uh, yep. Uh, uh, what's Bob Mold? Yeah. I mean the list goes on and on with great Minneapolis talent. Johnny Lang, kid mm-hmm. Johnny. Oh Lang, yeah, right. All from Minneapolis. Well, Mark Orion was this guitar player. He was with a band called Straight Up in the seventies that were pretty big locally but they had a few drug problems, and they never got it nationally. This guy could play. Yeah. And he, he put me together. And the key to rock and roll is this. Surround yourself with legitimate great musicians, and you can't go wrong. That's right, yeah. <laughs> it's that simple. You can be the worst singer in the world, but if you've got great core of musicians, you cannot go wrong. And that's what I had. And so we went out touring that summer we called it the manure tour because we'd go out into the rural areas and, of course, you smell manure out there. Yeah. <laughs> so we named it the manure tour. But, uh, yeah, we actually – and then we did an event at the Metrodome called the, for the Smoke-Free Generation and all this stuff. And then, uh, and then I actually opened on the river for uh, – God, what was the all-girl group? Go-Go's? No, Climax. 
Oh, Climax. Yeah, that was the world. Yeah, that's that's all girls. Yeah. Yeah. We opened for them on this river thing, and that's when I got introduced that they don't even play instruments now. <laughs> we got down there, right? And I'm with real musicians, so we actually went out and played. Yeah. We're leaving the stage, and Climax's music's already on, the main him on the stage. And I turned to Billy Brill, who called me to do it from MCA Universal Records. I said, Billy, what the hell is this? Billy raised his hand and goes, welcome to the 80s. <laughs> totally right. Yeah, they're not even playing their instruments. It's all pre-recorded bullshit. And I'm going, God, this, yeah, well, I'm not, you know, but yeah, I actually headlined First Avenue and sold it out. Wow, that's a famous club, man. Yeah, the famous club where Prince made famous. That's in right, Rain. Purple Rain. I, I played First Avenue and, and sold it out. In <laughs> fact, they, they, what, how did they advertise it? That they said, uh, we were called that, it was, uh, the, we were the soldiers of fortune. Ah, perfect name. And and it, and they advertised it. Jesse Ventura and the Soldier of Fortune. And how did they say it again? It was hilarious. For a night of something or other music, you know, it was it was kind of a dig at me, but it was still yeah. funny. Night of body you know, slam and rock and roll. Something on that nature. And but it, but I'll tell you, doing rock and roll was fun because, as I said, if you surround yourself with great musicians, it, it's a piece. It's a walk in the park. You just then got to be yourself. Yeah, well, that's all about being all a character. You be yourself. Yeah, because well, uh, I remember the last gig we did was at the Cove up in Superior, Wisconsin. Uh huh. And uh, we we went overboard that night because they they locked the doors and we kept playing. And I remember that night we did Jimi Hendrix's "Hey Joe" without even a rehearsal. Just laid it down, man. Just jammed laid it. it down, and I did the lyrics, and Mark could play Jimi Hendrix just like Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I asked you this way back, and we, and we we talked about so many things. But tell us about uh, the experiences of working for the Stones. You're talking about rock and roll, working for oh, the biggest well, rock anyway, and roll band. What happened? That's where we were heading to anyway. Thanks yeah. <laughs> for me back from track. Anyway, what happened in '78? I had had some minor knee surgery that I was recovering from, so I had a couple months out of wrestling. And a friend of mine was working for Schoen Productions, who mm-hmm. handled all the rock bands that came to Minnesota. Right. And he said, hey, would you be interested in bodyguarding the rock bands when they come just in Minnesota? You just got to take care of them while they're here. You don't go on the road with them yeah. just while they're here. I said, sure, because the payoff, they gave you, I think, 25 bucks, and you got to sit in the pit. <laughs> and I loved rock and roll anyway, so you're the closest you're ever going to. I mean, Mick Jagger will sweat on you. Yeah. That's how close you are. And so the Stones came in 78 and 81. And I remember the week before, two weeks before the Stones, Rush came. Oh, yeah. And you know what they, you know what they did for us? Now, Rush is a great group of guys, but you really got to love Getty Lee because of his voice. Yes, if you spend an hour and a half listening to Getty Lee, you could commit mass murder. <laughs> you know, because after about very an hour high and voice, half, it yeah. kind of grates on you a little yeah. bit. Yeah, high, high, high voice. Oh yeah. So here's what they did: they said anybody that does Rush can automatically do the Stones. Wow. Okay. So they so they used Rushes to pay off. If you put up with Getty's voice for two hours, <laughs> you could do the Stones. So I did Rush, and they're very nice guys. I'll say that Rush is one of the nicest groups yeah. you'll ever meet. They're very, very gentlemen all the way. But anyway, so I did the Stones in '78, and then in '81, and in '81 they got right up to the time the Stones were supposed to go on, and they didn't have no one to introduce them. So Randy Levy, who was at show, comes up to me and says, well, you're a star, you're a wrestler, you want to introduce the Rolling Stones? I said, sure. 
<laughs> so I got to walk out there, and that, that was the year they had the rotating stage. Yes. If you remember that. The tattoo you tour. The stage, and then the stage would rotate around, and there'd be the stones. Mm-hmm. And so I had to walk out, and they, there's, they only allow you to say this. You can't say nothing else. It's just you walk out, and you go, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, the world's greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones. And then you walk off the stage. Yeah. And it was funny that night because when I got done, the Stones come off the stage, and I'll never forget Ron Wood. Woody looks at me and goes, Jesse, how'd we do? I said, great, Woody, as always. <laughs> <laughs> great experience, right? I mean, you're going to tell the Rolling, ask them, how did yeah. the Rolling Stones do? You know, even if they're bad, yeah. they're good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, talking. And then the fun part was when I became governor. Uh-huh. My first proclamation as governor, February of 1999, the Stones were coming to Minneapolis, and I declared Minnesota Rolling Stones Day that day with the whole governor's proclamation and everything. And that <laughs> night, I met met with them and. I'll never forget, Keith Richards came up to me that night, uh-huh. and he looks at me, and he goes, he didn't remember, but he goes, but he had heard. He said, so you used to bodyguard us back in 78 and 81, huh? And I said, yup. And Keith goes, and now you're the governor. And I went, yup. And in his great Cockney British accent, he looks at me and goes, fucking great. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I'll always remember Keith Richards saying that to me, fucking great. <laughs> Well, I mean, so many great experiences, like you mentioned, but there's another one I wanted to mention. You you talked about Predator with Schwarzenegger. Now, back in 86 or 87, when you filmed that, you were like one of the first, if not the first, you know, big time wrestlers that went into big time movies. How was that experience working with Arnold? Because you guys were deep in the jungle for for a month or two months on, on end. Oh, yeah. We were 10 weeks in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, and most of the shooting was about an hour and a half into the jungles down there. But it was a lot of fun. I wasn't the first. Hogan was the first, really, of the modern era. Okay, you're right. Yeah, when you're he right. got the role in Rocky Three. That's right. Good point. Because, because that, that really broke it open all of a sudden. And then, of course, when wrestling went national and the first WrestleMania hit, we were the hottest things. And then you had Roddy Piper starring in They Live. Yeah, it was huge, too. No, that was huge, too. And uh, John Carpenter cast Roddy in the lead role of They Live. Mm-hmm. And so it started opening up new doors for for all of us. But the thing that it did for me in wrestling, the key to wrestling is getting famous at something else and then coming back. That's right. (laughs) That's the key. And I actually said that to Vince one day, I was doing voiceovers with him and we're sitting in the booth because I I got, you know, I got to know Vince very well when I get locked in a booth with him for five hours, every three weeks, you know, just him and I, and I looked at him one day and I said, Hey, Vince, I said, answer me a question, will you? And he goes, what? I said, the key to this business is to go get famous at something else and then come back to it, isn't it? And Vince gave me that sly Vince look, and he goes, now you're learning. <laughs> and so I stored that in the back of my mind, and then when I got cast for Predator, Vince wasn't going to let me do it because hmm. were, we were too big in the, the big explosion of wrestling. I had to quit. Really? He went, no. He told me I couldn't do it. And wow. I said, bullshit. I said, I got the part. I said, I quit. <laughs> so I quit. And, and here's the part where he got nailed. NBC had just signed him to the second year of Saturday Night Main Event, expecting me on the mic. Wow. And remember that second year, they opened up with Heenan. Yes. Because I had quit. 
Ah. And then Vince, that's when I got to bring an agent in because Vince, NBC came to Vince and said, we bought this with Jesse Ventura. You better get him. Wow. So you had some leverage. Oh, big leverage. That, that, I wrote my own ticket then because <laughs> I had an agent too. In fact, the, the biggest compliment I was ever paid in wrestling was by my former manager, Classy Freddie Blassie. Mm-hmm. Freddie Blassie said in the locker room one day, and I wasn't there because I had my own separate dressing area then. I, I had my own thing that mm-hmm. threw everything by that time. Freddie Blassie turned to the boys and he said, there's only one guy here that, uh, that, that how did Freddie put it, that uh, does it his way, and that's Jesse Ventura. Vince, mm-hmm. touch him. Yeah. You know? and, and, oh, I know how. He said, there's only one guy here that calls his own shots. He said, that's Jesse Ventura. Because of and that. I, and I was so proud to have an old-timer like Freddie Blassie say that. Mm-hmm. So, but he said, Jesse Ventura is the only guy here that calls his own shots with Vince. And it worked, with, especially working in a movie with Schwarzenegger, who was at his peak at the time. Oh, yeah. So were you. I mean, both guys, you know, both have bravado, great character, both uh, pump a lot of iron. Could you guys work out in the jungle? I mean, what kind of experiences did you have with Arnold? Oh, Arnold, Arnold has a whole semi that goes to every location, and they set up an entire gym in the hotel. Wow, okay. And, and, and Arnold's great. He gives everybody a key. Anybody that works out, he'll give you a key to the workout and says, whenever you need it. Oh, right on. Okay. And, and, and what I used to do to Arnold down there, Arnold had his big bodyguard, Sven, with him, Sven Oli Thorson. Mm-hmm. And uh, they'd always come in and work out before we'd go to the set at about 6 in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. I would always get there at a quarter to 6, and I'd take the water, and I'd, and I'd soak my T-shirt. So I'd be soaking wet, so when Arnold <laughs> and Sven would walk in, I'd be soaking wet doing lap pulls or whatever, and Arnold would always go, Sven, we better get up sooner. Look at Jesse, the body's been in your training for hours. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it kept getting progressively. I think we made it to where I had to start getting up at like four. <laughs> in order to beat Arnold and Sven there, I kept having to get up earlier and earlier every morning to wet myself down. I'd get there two minutes before them, and I'd just soak myself with, with water. <laughs> so it looked like I'd been there for hours. <laughs> that's great man <laughs> the but great anyway oh the other thing too when i was doing predator is when arnold approached me about doing the running man oh so that's why i wanted to sign that first mm-hmm. before i went back to vince got it with two, yeah with two legitimate big big time hollywood movies under your belt yep and that gave me the leverage to bring an agent in and for freddie de blassie to be able to say Jesse Ventura is the only guy that calls his <laughs> shots. Own shots. Yeah, let's talk about. Sorry. Oh, I, I got to tell you, Chris, I had it made then. I'd work one day every three weeks, and the pay per views. Then that was it. Which were four then. So I'd work one day every three weeks and four pay per views a year, and I was making phenomenal money. Wow! Just to talk. Just to talk. <laughs> let's talk about signing the main event, though. I mean, signing the main event was it was a huge, uh, a huge breakthrough for the WWF at the time. Uh, how important was that show uh, to get it on the air and, and to, you know, obviously, like you said, the fact that you had to be involved with it? I mean, it was a big deal. Huge. It was NBC, and we rotated every fourth week with Saturday Night Live. How right. Can you get the map? Huge. They have three Saturday Night Lives, and then the fourth week was Saturday Night Main Event. I remember the one year, the first year we did it, Saturday Night Live was opening. The second year we did it was opening with Madonna, mm-hmm. guest host, and she was red hot. Yeah. We came on a week later and blew her numbers out of the water. Wow. 
Do you know what? We did a 33 share. What? Yes. It's the highest in history for what they call a late night special. And that basically means 33% of the people watching TV are watching Saturday Night's Main Event. One, one out of every three television sets in America was watching Saturday Night Live. Wow. Or Saturday Night's Main Event. Do you we, can... Oh, we blew Madonna. Madonna had like a 22. Wow. We, we beat her by like 10 points. We had a, that, was a, that was the buildup. We were building up for WrestleMania three with Hogan and uh, Andre. Yes. I was just going to ask you about that. I mean, was that one of the best buildups that you can remember that you've oh, ever been a part of? Huge. But it wasn't the best match. Nope. The best match that night was Macho Man and that, Steamboat. That's right. Hands down, not even close. To this day, still stands up as one of the greatest matches of all time. For me, it is the greatest. I've never seen one better. Wow. So of all the matches you've seen, that's the best. That's the best one that I can re- That's the one... There, if I saw something better, Chris, it ain't in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got to be the because that's the one that stick, has stuck with me. I'm 63 years old now, and that happened way back when, yeah. 20 some years ago, and that's the match that sticks with me today. So it's got to be the best one. Yes, still this day. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let me ask you something else to turn the subject a little bit. It's another reason why I've always been very interested in 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 in, in what you do. Uh, you're very much into conspiracy theories and the, all the things. I mean, we talked about it on your TV show that you had on True TV, uh, conspiracy theory. So many uh, amazing and and interesting and behind the scenes things. Is this something that you just got into since you've been the governor? Or have you always kind of been into conspiracy theories? No, actually, I have. I, I wasn't into conspiracy theories. I was into only one, and that was the murder of John Kennedy. Right. And and actually, I attribute that to wrestling. Why is that? When wrestling made its change from driving in cars to flying in planes in the mid eighties. Mm-hmm. Well, all of a sudden, I'm not riding in cars anymore. Driving, I'm sitting in airports and flying on planes. It's boring as hell. You know that. <laughs> That's right. Cripe, you spend every day sitting in an airport and sitting on an airplane. I started reading, mm-hmm. and I started buying every book I could get on the murder of John Kennedy. I found it fascinating. Wow. And that's how I educated myself. All those 30 times flying every month, I was reading books on the assassination of John Kennedy. I thought, you're sitting on these planes, educate yourself. Do mm. something constructive. Wow. And that's how, that's how it started. Yeah, and then what happened was... You know, as things went on, once you learn about Kennedy and you learn what a joke it is that they blame Lee Harvey Oswald because it is a joke, mm-hmm. there's no doubt in my mind that Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill President Kennedy. In <laughs> fact, I've seen a photograph where Lee Harvey Oswald is actually standing out in front of the book depository building at the time Kennedy went by. So you think he was just a patsy? Totally. Wow. He was the setup man. He, you've got to have a patsy. That's the only way a coup d'etat can happen. Someone has to get blamed. So what is your, what is your theory? What is your opinion on what went down? 
Well, I believe that, that in that, in the case of Kennedy, yes. I believe that uh, it goes all the way to Lyndon Johnson. Okay, in what way? He wanted to be president. So he orchestrated it? He helped. If wow. get into it and say, well, Lyndon Johnson knew he could, his greatest dream was to be president. Mm-hmm. He knew he could never achieve it because a Southerner would not get elected president at that point in time. Wow. In, in the early 60s. So Johnson was the head. He was the most powerful man in the Senate. He blackmailed Kennedy into taking him as his running mate. Hmm. I read all about it. Uh, and, and so he left a position of power, and Kennedy took him as VP because he figured he could marginalize him. The real VP was Bobby. Right. Jack consulted with Bobby. He didn't consult with Lyndon. But all the while, Lyndon was scheming on how to become the president. Well, when the president, Lyndon insisted that Kennedy go to, to Texas to help win the next election, right? Mm-hmm. Get this, Lyndon Johnson left 30 days ahead of time to prepare for the president's arrival. 30 days ahead of time. 30 days ahead of time. So and not only that, but when you really get into it, it, it will, okay, here's another simple thing. President Kennedy's limousine is a, is, is a murder site, correct? Right. He was shot in the limo, so therefore it should have had the yellow tape put around it. Nobody should have been able to touch that limousine until investigators went through it, correct? We've right. all seen that on TV. Yes. Right? Lyndon Johnson immediately ordered that the next day that limousine was up in Pontiac, Michigan, being fully restored by the Ford Motor Company. Wow. On orders from Lyndon Johnson. Wow. So he broke the law. Huh. That's a murder site. Yeah. What right does he have to send the murder site up to Pontiac, Michigan, and have it fully restored a day later? So, and, and where, where were the shooters then? They weren't in the book depository, or they were? Well, uh, to me, the, the, the head shooter was behind the picket fence of the grassy knoll. Hmm. No doubt about it, because if you look at films, when it's over, 75 people are running up the grassy knoll. Because that's where they saw and heard the shots from. Oh, right. And yeah. you can see it on all the films. Anybody that takes the time to study the Kennedy killing, and then I'll give you one book to read if you want to debunk the whole Warren Commission. Mm-hmm. Read Whitewash One by Harold Weisberg. It was written one year after the Warren Commission. Harold Weisberg was a former CIA analyst before they were the CIA in World War II. That's what he did for a living. And he... He destroys the entire Warren Commission one year after it was printed. Hmm. And yet nobody, you won't hear anybody talk about that book, Whitewash. So, I mean, so the whole theory with, with Cuba and all that sort of thing, do you, do you subscribe to the fact that Cuba might have been involved or the whole yeah, Bay of sure. Pigs? And- Cuba, Cuba wasn't involved. I asked Castro. I sat face-to-face with Fidel and asked You did? Absolutely. What did you I'm say? The only, I'm the only. I did it when I was governor. I'm the only elected official that has sat down with Fidel Castro for one hour in Havana, Cuba. Wow! Over the objections of President George Bush. How did you get the permission to do that? Well, they they lowered the sanctions temporarily for medical and agricultural, and I led a medical agricultural contingent from Minnesota to Havana. And I got an hour audience with Fidel Castro. And the last 20 minutes, I asked him, can I ask you a personal question? He said, ask me anything you want. And I said, you were alive, and in many scenarios, 
people think you were involved in the shooting of President Kennedy, I would like your perspective of what happened that day. I couldn't shut him up. The first thing Castro said, he said it was an inside job. And he said Oswald couldn't make the shots. You know that as well as I do. Mm -hmm. Said that at that time, he was very close to the Soviets. And he said the Soviets had told him, this Kennedy, you can talk to this man. Hmm. If, if Jack Kennedy would have lived, there would have been no Vietnam War. Wow. He was going to pull us out. He had ordered the first thousand out by Christmas, and he had already stated after he was reelected, he was pulling us out of Vietnam. He was killed so that we could have the Vietnam War. Yeah. So and look what happened. The minute, and here's your other telltale sign. I read about this. Lyndon Johnson. The, the day after Kennedy was killed and Johnson flew back to Washington, he still had Kennedy's cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. Met with Kennedy's cabinet. Now, bear in mind, the Vietnam War hasn't even started yet. The first topic was the Vietnam War. Not the state of the state or the state of the union or the economy. The first thing Lyndon Johnson had a meeting with the cabinet on was the Vietnam War. Mm. He reversed the policy. Kennedy was going to pull us out. Johnson put us in. Wow. Wow. And that's, that's what Jack Kennedy was killed, I believe, by the military-industrial complex so that we could have the Vietnam War. But there were more elements than just that one. Kennedy was also hated by the CIA. He was hated. He was going to take away the oil depletion allowance, which is what, how all these big oil guys get to make their money. Mm -hmm. Kennedy was going to eliminate that. So there was about six entities that wanted Jack Kennedy gone. I mean, that's that's such a, a huge, um, uh, I don't know, plan or a huge strategy that would have to be put together with a lot of different elements. I mean, it's just amazing that that, that could well, even happen. Okay, let me get, explain that. Many people say to me, come on, somebody would have to talk. Well, people have talked. It's mm -hmm. just that mainstream media won't listen. Mm -hmm. I had a full confession on conspiracy theory from E. Howard Hunt to his son, St. John. I thought it was going to be headlines across America. Howard Hunt admits to role in Kennedy killing. It was called the big event. Mm -hmm. He even named the CIA guys involved, David Sanchez Morales. And uh, I forget the other guy now. I can't think of him off the top of my head. Nothing said about it. So there has been people who have talked. The other thing to remember, Chris, is this. The Manhattan Project, you know what that is, right? Well, I've heard of it, but explain exactly what that okay, was. Is the, it time the travel? The Manhattan Project is when we created the atomic bomb. Okay. All right, over 100,000 people were involved in that, mm -hmm. yet nobody knew until the bomb hit Hiroshima. Wow. None of it leaked out. How 100,000 people worked on the Manhattan Project in some form. And yet nobody knew we had the atomic bomb until it landed in Hiroshima. Hmm. So a secret, and here's why secrets can be held in government. It's so department, compartmentalized. The hmm. left hand don't know what the right hand's doing. Oh, gotcha. You, you could be given a job, Chris. Okay, deliver this from point A to point B. That's all you know. You don't know the big picture. Your boss just told you to do something. And somebody told your boss to tell you to do that. Follow me? Yes. And like, okay, do you remember the arms for hostages thing that took place in the 80s? Yes. I had a good friend that I served with, the SEALs, 
who was part of Dick Marcinko's elite SEAL Team 6 in the 80s, mm-hmm. which you now know about. They were unknown until a couple years ago. Well, he was sitting at home in front of his TV set when the Arms for Hostages broke, and he looked up. He said, oh, my God, I was involved in that. Hmm. He didn't know. He didn't know. He was given a job. Right. You got to deliver this from point A and deliver it to so and so at point B. That's all you know. It only requires a handful of people to know the big picture. Yeah, and then the rest just act out their orders. Yep. The rest is all compartmentalized. And that's how they get away with it. Now this is this is really big stuff, and, and it's obviously very interesting, and it's something that, like I said, I, I, I'm with you on all of this stuff. Now, being as influential as you are, ex-governor and you know TV personality, and pretty much a, a worldwide, do you do you piss people off when you, when you talk about stuff like this? Sometimes, do well, you... they marginalize me. Mainstream media calls me a kook now. Oh, you know, I, I'm called a conspiracy theorist. I'm called a a, a, a truther. Hmm. Even though I've never joined. Isn't it interesting, Chris? They've taken the word truth and made it bad. Yeah, right. Now, the opposite of truth is lie. So lie is good now. Truth is bad. Because mm-hmm. if you're a 9-11 truther, you're bad. Right. Well, they've, mor- they've morphed the word truth. Somehow now the truth is bad. How can the truth be bad? Mm-hmm. It can't be. We can't allow that. And, and so that's the point. And the reason I get so stuck on Kennedy is like I tell people this. Always remember, and I don't know who they is necessarily, mm-hmm. but if they can kill the president and get away with it, what can't they do? Right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much bigger than that, right? No. If you can kill the leader of the free world and get away with it, there's nothing you can't get away with. So who, who trumps the president when you're talking about they? I mean, who, who's a higher entity than the president? Obviously, in a coup d'etat, somebody is. Because mm-hmm. that's where you take out the leader of the country and you establish a new one. Right. So who's they? Well, go back as, as in, the, in the JFK, the movie with Kevin Costner, when mm-hmm. you turn to the guy and go, don't you read your Shakespeare, Bill? Who killed Caesar? They mm-hmm. weren't strangers. They were senators. Mm-hmm. Ta-da. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's so think m- about it. Who killed Caesar? It wasn't a lone nut assassin. It was the very senators all around him. Mm-hmm. Who killed Kennedy? The very people around him. Wow. Yeah, that's it's interesting stuff. Uh, like you said, man. I mean, I'm I'm just surprised when when like when you mentioned that you got these confessions that 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 there isn't people that would be trumpeting that in the media, but I guess they don't want they don't want people to know. Here's why. Mainstream media is not going to it now remember Kennedy's last century, right? Mm-hmm. Is mainstream media going to admit they got the crime of the century wrong? Yeah, right. <laughs> Never. I wouldn't care. You could come up with a videotape today showing the shooter shooting from the grassy knoll and leaving. Mm-hmm. And, and mainstream media still wouldn't acknowledge it. It's not going to happen. Yeah, that, that's they, a, won't, they will not do it, and they have the blessing of our government to support them. Yeah, that 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 uh, mystery will never be solved. I'd have to say. Well, to me, it's solved because I've studied it and I know. Mm-hmm. So I will go to my grave knowing full well Lee Harvey Oswald did not do it. But I mean, officially, it'll never be solved. You know, no, but, yeah. officially, never will. And mm-hmm. here's your other point, Chris. 
okay, here's the simplistic way to look at it. If it's what they told us, that Lee Harvey Oswald killed President Kennedy and was the lone assassin, mm-hmm. right? Why would they have to lock up anything in the archives and not let us see it for 75 years? Yeah, isn't there a statute of limitations on those things where they have to be released at a certain time or something? Oh, because the newer president can put it deeper in. That's what George Bush did to his father's stuff on the arms for hostages. Oh. That was supposed to, cut, that was supposed to be declassified, and he reclassified it for another 25 years till his dad dies. Wow. Oh, yeah, they cover for each other. Just like 9-11 now. There's congressmen that want them to open up the 9-11 files because they got all this redacted stuff dealing with Saudi Arabia. Well, I would like to know what the Saudis knew about 9-11. What, what's your, your, your uh, theory on the 9-11? Well, my theory is this. They, here's, what they, here's what they got all of the people of America to believe. Here's, here's their conspiracy theory. Because let's remember, the government's only providing you a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Correct? Right. There's never been a trial. They've never put anyone on trial for 9-11, have they? No, they haven't. So they haven't come forward with one shred of actual evidence, have they? Nope. No. Here's what they told you, and here's what the American people bought. That 19 Islamic radicals armed with box cutters defeated our multi-billion dollar air defense system all while conspiring with a bearded guy in a cave in Afghanistan. <laughs> it's laughable when you put it that way. That's what they sold us. That's exa- and, and here's what I'd like to ask, Chris. Where did they come up with the box cutters? Everybody on the planes were killed. How do they know they were hijacked with box cutters? Right, right, right. From the black oh, box? How, how do they know that? From the black box? They never found the black boxes. Wow, yeah. Those were destroyed, too, even though Mike Ballone, a guy I know, was cleaning up the site the night they found three of the four. And they just magically disappeared? Yeah, he said they were taken away in black vans, and he said, I can't answer for them now. But he said, I was there the night they discovered three out of four of them at Mm. the site. Wow. I also interviewed a girl, Sergeant April Gallup top secret security clearance. She was in the very room in the Pentagon where the alleged plane hit. She looked me right in the eye and said there wasn't a plane. There was no debris. There were no bodies. There was no luggage. So what was it, a bomb? I don't know, or a rocket. She actually staggered out the hole and collapsed on the lawn, and that's where she was recovered, and the government immediately put her into 72-hour solitary confinement. For what? They didn't want her talking. Wow. Because she said there wasn't a plane. You remember seeing a plane hit the Pentagon? Yeah, no. No. And yet that building has cameras 24 hours a day, seven days a week, over hundreds of them. Hmm. And the government confiscated all the film and won't let us see the plane hit the Pentagon. Why? I don't know, (laughs) because there's a secret. When you start asking these questions, Chris, don't you see a cover-up? Well, I mean, and even when you talk about the, the, the Twin Towers and the way that they demolished kind of going down rather than falling over, is that something that's strange that to you? never hit the ground. Yeah. They were dustified. What do you mean dustified? Well, okay, you remember the King Dome in Seattle, the football stadium? Yeah. They took that down with conventional demolition. Mm-hmm. And they were done. Now, this is a dome stadium with a lot of air. Right. Right, a dome. When they were done... 
the King Dome was 15% of its original height in debris on the ground. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much of the Twin Towers' original height was in debris on the ground? How much? Less than 2%. Wow. Where did the other 98 go? You think it was just uh, annihilated? It was, it was turned into dust. Remember that huge dust all over Manhattan? Yeah. There's the Twin Towers. So, and that, and that, that happens by getting hit by a certain bomb or a certain missile? I don't know, <laughs> but it don't happen by two planes hitting a building, yeah. and the building allegedly collapsing to the ground. Hmm. It never got to the ground. The building never got to the ground. The, the, the bath or the basement of the Twin Towers was unharmed. Now, oh. if you're telling me the, the, the weight of that building comes crashing to the ground, wouldn't it have destroyed the basement? Absolutely. But it didn't. Huh. Because nothing came crashing to the ground. Everything was turned into dust. Yeah, there's, there's obviously a lot of... Uh, there was 1,100 cars, Chris, burnt and flipped over all over Manhattan as far as five blocks away. I've seen photos. Cars flipped over on their hoods, on their tops. What could cause that? You know what I was told caused it? What? They said when the buildings came down, there was such a rush of air, right? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe that seems feasible. Then I re-looked at the photo, and you know what blew that out of the water? What? Here was a car flipped over on its hood, covered in dust, right? And right next to it was a tree with all its leaves. Hmm. Now, how could wind blow so hard to flip a car and not blow a leaf off a tree? Wow. Yeah. So I... Those cars were not flipped by wind. Something else flipped them. And I'll leave you with this. And this will be something your listeners can think about and contemplate. Okay? Mm -hmm. Everything that's hot glows, but not everything that glows is hot. Right? Right. Now I want you to think about the microwave oven for a minute. You can take a piece of chicken and you can put it on a paper plate and you can stick it in the microwave. You can burn that chicken black and the paper is left unharmed, isn't it? That's right, yeah. You remember all those papers flying all over Manhattan that day? Mm-hmm. There were over 3,000 metal filing cabinets that were destroyed, and the paper wasn't. I'd like an explanation to that. No, like, like you said, Jesse, there's a lot of things that, that uh, you know, aren't what like they seem. I, like I just gave you the examples right there. I would love an explanation as to how these cars and only the metal was toasted on the cars, not the vinyl, not the seats, not the rubber. Only metal. You got to think molecular. Something molecular happened there. Right. Wow. Lots to think about, right? And then go to Nikolai Tesla and you'll get your answer. In what way? You know who Tesla is? Yeah, of course. All right. Well, study Tesla. And I'll leave it at that. All right. The secret is with Tesla. The secret is Nikola Tesla, who allegedly devised the death ray. Many years ago with free energy. Wow. The plot. No, you want to read the greatest book? I'll, I'll put it out so all your, all your people can hear. you got to go to the Internet, but there's a book out there called Where Did the Towers Go by Dr. Judy Wood. She's a physicist. Mm-hmm. I think Clemson University, she got fired for writing this book. Wow. It's, it's called Where Did the Towers Go by Dr. Judy Wood. I urge people to get that book and read it. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to read it and then check it out. Jesse, check it out. 
It's great to talk. We could talk for another hour about sure so much. Could, Chris, but we got to go. They yes. Just put a thing in front of me. We need to go. One last question. What, 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 right. what was your favorite match of all time? That I was in? Yes. My favorite match? Yeah. I think it would have to be the first time I sold out for the world title with Bob Backlund at the Garden. Doesn't get much bigger than that, does it? Well, it was Madison Square Garden, the Mecca Ring Sports, and I was the headliner. It was 23,000 people. And I was wrestling Backlund for the world title. I think that's the biggest match that I ever physically was involved in. It's a great, great story, great match. Jesse, thank you so much, man. And uh, hey, Chris, keep up the great work. We'll talk again. Sounds good. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks again to Jesse Ventura. Always interesting talking to him. We could have gone another hour just about the conspiracy stuff, but his, uh, his people uh, put the kibosh on that. That was it. We'll have to get him back to dive a little deeper into that uh, in the future. It's probably going to wait till after my summer run with WWE, though, all right? As you guys know, lots of live events, no TVs, no pay-per-views. It's the Y2J WWE Summer Tour starting June 12th in Springfield, Illinois, and June 13th in Terre Haute, Indiana. I got all the dates. Coming up, go to WWE.com and check those out for June, July, August. I am excited. It's going to be a blast to, to, to go back to the WWE and work. Finn Balor is going to be uh, one of the guys July 4th in Tokyo. I know Wade Barrett is going to be uh, one of my opponents in San Diego on July 31st. Lots of action going on uh, and also some action going on on the new and improved Tough Enough on the USA Network. That starts June 23rd and I'm hosting the damn show. Not a mentor, not a trainer. I am the host, baby. I'm the Ryan Seacrest of the WWE. Okay, so that's going to be a great, great show live June 23rd on the USA Network. Plus live, Fozzie's still got some summer touring to do. We've got a handful of shows and festival dates coming up June 25th at the Val Air Ballroom in Des Moines. June 26th at the Hard Rock Hotel in Sioux City, Iowa. We got July 24th at the Square in Kitchener, Ontario. July 7th, Heavy Montreal. We're playing in Montreal. And October 30th, we set sail on the Kiss Cruise with Paul and Gene and all the boys. I want you to go to FozzyRock.com for all ticket info, all VIP info. We just announced our new Cinderblock Party Tour going to, back to Europe in November and December. That's England and Wales, Germany, Luxembourg, uh, Austria, there's so many, uh, France. Go to FozzyRock.com for all information. More dates to be added. More guests coming up on Talk is Jericho. I thank you guys for listening. Thank the sponsors for, for always putting up and always uh, uh, helping us out. True Car, DDP Yoga, Koyos, Articies, Burger King. Of course, Amazon. They've been with us since day one. Amazon, easiest way to support this show. Use my links whenever you can to do Amazon shopping. I bought some life jackets today using my Amazon link. All right? You can do it too. I got Amazon links for USA. UK and Canada a day. Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to show. So we keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. No extra fees or hidden charges. You're just getting your shopping done. You're helping me out in the process. You go to podcastone.com, click on the support or show banners at the uh, top of the page, then hit the talk is Jericho button. All right. A great, great show today. And got another good one coming up on Friday. You know who it's going to be? It's the hottest new prospect in the WWE right now. He's been burning it up, tearing it up. He's uh, working with John Cena at the next Elimination Chamber pay-per-view next week. He is Kevin Owens. That's right. One of the biggest, hottest new names in the WWE, in the wrestling world right now. And, of course, who's he going to talk to? He's going to talk to me. That's right. Who are you going to call? 
TikTok is Jericho. Skong gong, bedling, dong, dong. Skong gong, doodling, dong, dong. Skong gong, doodling, yeah, boy. Skong gong, doodling, yeah, boy. See you on Friday. Skong gong, doodling, wow. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. <laughs>